last week in part one of our consideration of the seventh plague, we briefly touched on only a few key points in verses 13 through 26. To begin with, God declares through Moses that he is going to complete his plagues on Pharaoh in Egypt and that the remaining plagues will strike at the very heart of Pharaoh. In fact, God declares that he has caused Pharaoh to continue to stand for the very purpose of showing forth the power and glory of God and that the name of Jehovah, God of the Hebrews, would be declared throughout the whole world. And it has come true, hasn't it? But even in judgment, God leaves a way of escape for those that would heed his warning through his prophet. Even though this plague would strike all Egypt and spare Goshen, where God's people dwelt, those that would seek shelter for themselves and their livestock would also be spared. And the miraculous storm struck. Just as Moses said it would, devastating Egypt and those who rebelled against the word of the Lord. God's judgment is perfectly measured, just as his mercy and his grace to us today through Christ and his atoning work on the cross are measured exactly. We might say they're measured infinitely because they are abundant toward us. So let's read, uh, if you'll open your Bibles with me today, again, the narrative of the seventh plague, which is found in Exodus chapter 9, and we will read the whole passage again, beginning in verse 13 through to the end of the chapter. This is the word of God. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For at this time, I will send all my plagues to your very heart and on your servants and on your people that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. Now, if I had stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, then you would have been cut off from the earth. But indeed, for this purpose, I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. As yet, you exalt yourself against my people, in that you will not let them go. Behold, tomorrow about this time, I will cause very heavy hail to rain down, such has not been in Egypt since its founding until now. Therefore, send now and gather your livestock and all that you have in the field, for the hail shall come down on every man and every animal which is found in the field and is not brought home, and they shall die. He who feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh made his servants and his livestock flee to the houses. But he who did not regard the word of the Lord left his servants and his livestock in the field. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be hail in all the land of Egypt on man, on beast, and on every herb of the field throughout the land of Egypt. And Moses stretched out his rod toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail, and fire darted to the ground. And the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. So there was hail and fire mingled with the hail, so very heavy that there was none like it in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. And the hail struck throughout the whole land of Egypt, all that was in the field, both man and beast, 
and the hail struck every herb of the field and broke every tree of the field. Only in the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel were, there was no hail. And Pharaoh sent and called for Moses and Aaron and said to them, I have sinned this time. The Lord is righteous, and my people and I are wicked. Entreat the Lord that there may be no more mighty thundering and hail, for it is enough. I will let you go, and you shall stay no longer. So Moses said to him, As soon as I have gone out of the city, I will spread out my hands to the Lord. The thunder will cease, and there will be no more hail, that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. But as for you and your servants, I know that you will not yet fear the Lord God. Now the flax and the barley were struck, for the barley was in the head and the flax was in bud, but the wheat and the spelt were not struck, for they are late crops. So Moses went out of the city from Pharaoh and spread out his hands to the Lord. Then the, lun the thunder and the hail ceased, and the rain was not poured on the earth. And when Pharaoh saw that the rain, the hail, and the thunder had ceased, he sinned yet, yet more, and he hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hard. Neither would he let the children of Israel go, as the Lord had spoken by Moses. We pick up the narrative today in verse 27, where Pharaoh calls for Moses and Aaron and pleads with them to stop the hail. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we, in our own limited way, uh, examine this passage of scripture that you have inspired through the hand of Moses and preserved through hands throughout the centuries, we want to express our gratitude for giving us the truth. We can anchor our lives on what you have given to us in your word. We pray that by your spirit you would open our eyes to the truth contained here. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Pharaoh repents. Or does he? We'll open today's message with a quote from the expositor's commentary on the Bible about this portion of scripture. These words were written in the late 1800s. In oppressing, sorry, in oppressing the nation, therefore, Pharaoh usurped what belonged to the Lord. Now, this is the eternal charter of the rights of all humanity. Whoever encroaches on the just sphere of the free action of his neighbor deprives him to exactly the same extent of the power to glorify God by a free obedience. In part, this is why we are seeing the judgment of God poured out on Pharaoh and the Egyptians. They had oppressed God's people, depriving them of the power to glorify God by a free obedience. I mention this because it's easy to fall into the limits of thinking that God is maybe being too harsh on Pharaoh or too stern with Egypt. But God is perfectly just in his wrath. Just as he is perfectly just in his love and mercy and grace. We so often focus on the ones we like, disregard the ones we don't, but let's remember, God is perfectly just in his wrath. 
Pharaoh says these words, I have sinned this time. I have sinned this time. Pharaoh goes on to say, The Lord is righteous, and my people and I are wicked. In case we think these words may not be clear enough, the original Hebrew is very emphatic. It says, The Lord is the righteous one. Chatzadik. And I and my people are the sinners. Chatzadik. In essence, Pharaoh's words mean that God is alone righteous and that he and the Egyptians alone are sinners. Who of us could have imagined that after such an acknowledgement and confession, Pharaoh should have again hardened his heart? These sound like nearly perfect words of repentance from Pharaoh. But true repentance has not seemed to have worked its way from his head, particularly his tongue, into his heart. Pharaoh seemed to have been grieved at the consequences of sin, but not at the sin itself. It seems like the old, sorry I got caught kind of apology. I must admit that I find Pharaoh's so-called repentance troubling. I find myself wondering whether Pharaoh's words were said sincerely in the terror of the moment or whether he was just saying the words he knew Moses wanted to hear that he might end the plague of hail. The text itself gives us only one hint in verse 30 where Moses tells Pharaoh openly that he and his servants do not yet fear the Lord. Even without being certain of Pharaoh's heart in this matter, I think we can say a few things about false or deceptive repentance. False or deceptive repentance certainly has its root in superficial views of sin. It may be produced by terror or under compulsion or even extreme emotional manipulation but it is accompanied by no real change of heart. The only sin Pharaoh acknowledges is this time, as he says in verse 27. Pharaoh gives no admission that he is a sinner. He just admits, however superficially, that he did something wrong. Rare is the person who cannot admit that they've made mistakes but it is a giant step from there to confessing that you are a sinner in the eyes of a holy God deserving judgment. We might say something like, you've all heard it. Well, nobody's perfect. You've all heard that, right? Maybe you've even said it. Nobody's perfect. And thereby we excuse our bad behavior by comparing ourselves amongst ourselves. But we forget that Jesus of Nazareth is perfect and lived a perfect life, and that is the standard given to us by God. When we compare our conduct with the conduct of Christ, the excuse, nobody's perfect, rings very hollow. Another thing you'll notice about Pharaoh's repentance is that 
He doesn't ever seek forgiveness. He merely wants relief from the consequences of his rebellion against God. It's like a thief praying that the jury will declare him not guilty, even though he knows he committed the crime. But to be frank, I think there is only one sure way for you and I to know if repentance is real, and that is to see the fruits of repentance. In today's scripture, Pharaoh said the right words and appeared for a time to be truly sorry. If the story of Moses and Pharaoh would have abruptly ended after the end of verse 28 of our text, similar to, say, the story of Jonah. If you've read the story of Jonah, it's just all of a sudden it's the end of the book. Blam. If Exodus would have ended there, we might rejoice that Pharaoh finally came around. The only way we know that there was no change in Pharaoh's heart is by reading how he conducted himself after his so-called repentance. And when we continue reading, we see plainly that nothing had changed. During the ministry of John the Baptist, many of the common folk, this was early in his ministry, were coming to John to repent and to receive water baptism. Matthew chapter 3, verse 6 says that they were baptized in the Jordan, confessing their sins. Then the Sadducees and Pharisees came to John to be baptized as well because that was the popular thing to do at that time. After all, <clears throat> everybody's doing it. Let's read John's response to them in Matthew chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. But when John saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not think to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. Under the authority of God, John, as his holy prophet, revealed the hearts of these wicked men. He calls them a brood of vipers which I just want to remind you is not a great way to make friends, and tells them that there is no evidence in their lives of a transformed heart, no fruits worthy of repentance. Instead, they are relying on their status as children of Abraham to secure their exemption from the wrath to come. John disabuses them of this notion as well. God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones, if you so choose. So what makes you more special than a rock? In a sense, he is telling them, it is not their birth that will save them. It is only rebirth that will do that which Jesus himself would explain to Nicodemus later in his ministry when he tells him, you must be born again. In a similar way, I wonder if Pharaoh believed his birth as the ruler over all Egypt and even as a god 
that would secure him from the wrath of the true God. If so, he was sorely mistaken. What Pharaoh needed to do was bear fruits worthy of repentance and let the people go. If he wanted any hope of fleeing the wrath to come. Sadly, like many Sadducees and Pharisees who came later, his heart was hardened against God and his word. In fact, when you refuse to bend the knee to Jehovah, God of Israel, renewed hardening of the heart is actually the only possible outcome. You have no choice. As for you and your servants, Moses tells Pharaoh in verse 30, I know that you will not yet fear the Lord. In Acts chapter 26, Paul is standing in court before King Agrippa, giving his testimony about his conversion on the Damascus road. Let's read verses 19 and 20 of Acts 26. Therefore, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus and in Jerusalem and throughout all the land of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should repent, turn to God and do works befitting repentance. That was Paul's message. <clears throat> it is a transformed life, a life bearing fruits worthy of repentance, a life lived in the power of Christ that is evidence of genuine repentance from the world and toward God. Allow me to relate a short story to you. My mom and dad have lived in the same neighborhood, in the same house, for almost 70 years, if I'm not mistaken. During that time, many people in their neighborhood have come and gone. There were two couples, Pete, you'll know both of them, that lived close by, one directly to the west, one a few doors down to the east. For decades, they lived there. I'll keep their names to myself. Over the years, my folks spent a lot of time with both these couples, through good times and hard. In fact, it was by listening to them play aggravation. Does anybody know aggravation? It was by listening to these folks play aggravation that I learned how to count to six in Plowditch. I'd be laying in bed, ain't, ain't, ain't. The scary was when it was four, right? Fire, fire. I, I thought, well, we better get out. <laughs> it was fire. Zoss, zoss. Ah, ha, ha, ha. And people would laugh. That's how I learned. That just, the, the sound will never leave my ears. That is just where it's at for me. But for both these couples, the husbands, in spite of the faithfulness of their wives, had real trouble with alcohol. And it would bring out the very worst in both of them. Time was ticking on, though, and these men were growing older. By the grace of God, they both repented of the destructive lives they had lived and finally embraced Christ as their Savior and the Lord over every aspect of their lives. How do I know? They were utterly transformed. They abandoned their drinking habits, 
and began to attend church regularly. Not that just attending church does anything, but they not only attended church, they longed to be in church every Sunday to worship the Lord who had delivered them. They went from being men of a calloused and hard nature to softened, meek men who enjoyed visiting about the things of the Lord. You remember them. They are gone home now, and their wives as well, all home. But neither of these men left any doubt as to their eternal destination to any of their friends and family. They are now and forever with Jesus. Not because they were born with the correct last name or because their parents were godly people, but because they were born again by the Spirit of God through faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and they were reconciled to the Father through him. And it was this relationship with Christ which unavoidably led to a life bearing the fruits of repentance. I know I'm in the middle of my message, but I have to say this here right now. Some of us listening have been born into a godly family. Others have not. That's entirely out of our control. Some of us have said all the right words in the time of our deepest distress. Others have not. What we need according to John the Baptist and Paul the Apostle, is an inner transformation through genuine faith in Christ that shines out in the lives we live day to day. If you are one of those that at one point may have said all the right words, but you reflect upon your life since then and realize that there has been no deep, and lasting change, a change in which you have turned your back on the world and turned your face toward Christ, you are in grave danger of having to face the wrath to come. True discipleship under Christ is transformative. Sin is abhorrent to the follower of Christ. Holy living is a deep and abiding desire. Like the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 13, I invite you to look into your own heart, even if you might not like what you will find. Let's read verse 5 of 2 Corinthians 13. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? unless indeed you are disqualified. Eternity is a high price to pay for indifference toward your relationship to Jesus Christ. And if you are his, live like it. That is the evidence that you abide in him and his life in you. Now, to balance what I've just said, I also want you to know that the Word of God also teaches that you can be certain of your salvation. 
Toward the end of his first epistle, the Apostle John writes the following in 1 John chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. Verse 13, which I've boldfaced, is the purpose of the letter. And this is the testimony, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. When the Apostle writes, these things I have written. He's talking about the rest of the book of 1 John. So read it. Read 1 John. What has he written that you may know that you have eternal life? Back to our text in Exodus. There's no fear of the Lord. It was the general belief of the Egyptians as of most ancient nations, that each country had its own god or gods. Pharaoh had already admitted that Je Jehovah had power. He did that in chapter 8, verse 8. And now he even regarded him as the god of the Hebrews, over in Exodus 8, 28. But God would not allow himself to be diminished in the minds of the Egyptians, including Pharaoh. In verse 29 of today's text, God through Moses announces that he is bringing this plague of hail so that Pharaoh and his people, quote, may know that the earth is the Lord's. Not just the Hebrews, not just Goshen, not even just Egypt. God's power was not and is not limited by borders or culture or ethnicity or skin color, or any such thing. As God's prophet, Moses knew that Pharaoh was not being genuine in his promise to free the Hebrews. Moses says to Pharaoh in verse 30, But as for you and your servants, I know that you will not yet fear the Lord God. As a quick aside, this is, you can put this in parentheses, notice the transformation of Moses. Remember in the first plagues, the way he was? God, don't send me. I don't even know how to speak properly. You must have picked the wrong guy. Could, could you send someone else? He went from being a man who didn't think he could stand before Pharaoh to the man we see in verse 30, boldly pronouncing God's knowledge of Pharaoh's rebellious heart. Moses justly affirms that the Egyptians do not Fear the Lord. Because, as we have already mentioned, alarm and terror do not always lead the mind to reverence and do obedience. In verse 30, Moses speaks of true fear, which draws us to truth, which is why it is called the beginning of knowledge and the beginning of wisdom in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7 and Psalm 111, verse 10. This brings us 
to two interesting verses. If you're a farmer in here, I think you'll quite like these verses that prove that it was Moses that wrote these books. For centuries, enemies of the truth have tried to undermine God's word as infallible scripture. They continue to fail. They have insisted that Moses did not write the first five books of the Bible, but rather they must have been written many centuries later by a group of Jewish scribes. Verses 31 and 32 of today's text, as unimportant as they may appear to us, which accurately describe the farming cycles of ancient Egypt, throw a real wrench into their designs. There is no possible way that Jewish scribes living in Canaan or Babylon, who had never even been to Egypt, centuries after the events of the Exodus, could possibly have known the nature and the timing of Egyptian agricultural practices. It's not like they could Google it or go to the library even. There was no way they could know. But Moses got them exactly right. Folks, what we have in our hands is the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of the living God and never let any skeptic tell you otherwise. And Pharaoh still hardened his heart. One day, back in the early 1800s, the Reverend William Harness was visiting a prison chaplain in England and he asked him whether his ministry had been attended with success. With very little, I grieve to say, was the reply. A short time ago, I thought I had brought to a better state of mind a man who had attempted to murder a woman and had been condemned to death. He showed great signs of contrition after the sentence was passed upon him, and I thought I could observe the dawnings of grace upon his soul. I gave him a Bible and he was most diligent in the study of it, frequently quoting passages from it, which he said convinced him of the atrocity of his offense. The man gave such a promise of reformation and of a change of heart and life that I exerted myself to the utmost and obtained for him a changing of his death sentence that would enable him soon to be released and as I hoped, with a happier life. I called to inform him of my success. His gratitude knew no bounds. He said I was his preserver, his deliverer. And here, he said, as he grasped my hand in parting, here is your Bible. I may as well return it to you, for I hope I shall never need it again. And with that, we come full circle. Words are wind, unless they are accompanied by actions that show outwardly the transformation God has already wrought inwardly. You and I are not God. We do not know the minds of men. We can spend our whole lives trying to weigh the words of others to see if they are sincere. Instead, let us open our own hearts to Christ and allow him to make the transformation within us that is unmistakable to the world around us. We're going to close today's passage with the words of Jesus taken from Matthew chapter 5 and verse 16. 
Let your light so shine before men that they may hear your words. Oh, wrong translation. Sorry, that was the wrong translation. Start again. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. If you've got an issue with those words, take it up with Christ, not me. Let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, we are grateful for the truth of your scriptures. We are grateful that you have given us the freedom to continue to explore the words of truth that you have preserved for us. Thank you for your Holy Spirit, not only in inspiring and preserving the words, but in dwelling within those that have trusted Christ to enlighten our eyes to that which is written. Father, help us not just to be students of your word only, though, but to be practicers, to be practitioners, to be disciples of Christ. Those that hear what he says and do what he says because of the transformation that you have wrought within us. Help us not to be neglectful of those needs we see around us. Help us to care for others. Help us to care for this body of believers here. To do so in real, practical ways. Ways that you open up to us and empower us to do. Thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for your continued and abundant blessing upon us. We pray in the week to come that you would walk with us as we go out from this sacred time into the ordinary or what can seem like the ordinary day-to-day -day activities. We ask that your spirit would cause them to be extraordinary as we walk in the footsteps of Christ in the week to come. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen.